All right, everybody, welcome back into the original Gangsters podcast. It's been a while. Uh, Scott Bernstein here with my partner in crime, Jimmy Bucciolato. Hi, everyone. And uh, we're very excited that uh, we have uh, relaunched the original Gangsters podcast with the help of our new home, our new sponsors, uh, StartupNation.com and WJR760, the great voice of the Great Lakes. Um, they are the gold standard for news radio, uh, really in the, you know, the entire Midwest region of the, of the country. I grew up with uh, WJR, and I'm just really happy to be a part of the WJR family now. And uh, I'm appreciative of them you know, wanting to be a part of the original Gangsters brand. And uh, we are very, very eager to bring on our the first guest of the new incarnation of the original Gangster podcast is a previous guest of the old show, but uh, is a friend of the show and one of my true mentors in the world of crime writing, Dan Moldea, the uh, the godfather of Hoffa Research. We're going to start uh, our new uh, our new home. We're going to start off with an episode about Jimmy Hoffa and some real time. Um, relevant Jimmy Hoffa news. It's it's the the story that never dies. And we're going to bring on Dan all day. I always talk about, uh, there are, there, when you talk about ground zero for Jimmy Hoffa, you're talking about the Moccas Red Fox uh, in Bloomfield Hills, where he disappeared from. You're talking about uh, Teamsters Local 299 down on um, uh, around Michigan and Trumbull, which was his power base for a half century. And then you're talking about Dan Maldea's brain, <laughs> because Dan Maldea has been here since day one, uh, when he first disappeared back in the summer of 1975, uh, chronicling the case. He's got some big news to report, uh, a dig that could be on the horizon that you know stems from Dan's outstanding research and reporting and and uh he got a tipster that that really could be the linchpin for finally solving this thing so dan thank you for coming on to the original gangsters podcast again coming with us over to wjr and 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 giving us some uh, some of that tremendous knowledge always a pleasure scott uh you're one of my favorite people (laughs) and uh and i am a big fan of your work as well thanks dan and like i said uh for anyone that doesn't know dan moldea he is a uh, all-time great investigative reporter in the history of our country, um, someone who's written uh, at length about various topics, political, criminal, uh, Hollywood, sports, and uh, is just uh, really the, 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 an ace, a master of his craft, and has taught me so much. And when it comes to Jimmy Hoffa, uh, history, research, w- the story of what happened to Jimmy Hoffa, it, it really all starts with, with Dan's chronicling of the crime. Um, maybe we start with just a little bit of Dan, how, uh, tell the audience that, you know, how you got involved in the legacy of the Jimmy Hoffa assassination. I was um, a graduate student at Kent State. I was 24 years old in December 1974, and a guy with a rank and file reform organization within the Teamsters Union came to me and gave me the secret ledger book of Teamster pension fund loans. Uh, at the time I was, uh, I had a, I had a column for a little newspaper that serviced the black community in Northeastern Ohio. I was living in Akron, Ohio at the time. And, um, I, you know, started investigating the Teamsters and I did an eight part series for my little newspaper. And that led to July 30th, 1975. And, uh, Jimmy Hoffa disappeared. So I had eight months of investigating the Teamsters and the mafia under my belt. I had met a lot of people, including John Quitney from the wall street journal. And John and I went on a wild goose chase right after it was announced that Hoffa disappeared looking for Hoffa up at Eagle river, Wisconsin. Of course we didn't find him. We thought he was up there alive and well, we come to a very rational 
<laughs> that he was alive and well and living up there. He wasn't. Um, and then I went to NBC News, and then I, I was there for a while. Then I went to the Detroit Free Press, and then I went to Jack Anderson. And my contribution to the case early on was that I believe that I saw the violence at Hoffa's local before he disappeared. I was responsible for really bringing Roland McMaster into the picture on this game. I believe that Roland McMaster was a, is a huge linchpin in this whole case. He's a real Rosetta Stone, I think, of the Hoffa case. And he had a goon squad that was running around shaking down trucking companies. And, and several members of that goon squad were people who were also involved in the violence in Local 299 before Hoffa disappeared, which led right up until 20 days before Hoffa's disappearance when Dick Fitzsimmons' car was bombed over at Nemo's near Tiger Stadium. And in fact, it looked like a retaliation by Hoffa's people when in fact it was McMaster's men, two guys, allegedly uh, uh, Larry McHenry and Jim Shaw, who did the bombing to make it appear as though there was retaliation from Hoffa. And then of course, Hoffa disappeared 20 days later. So when Hoffa disappeared, I hit the ground running. McMaster was first person on my radar screen. I followed McMaster. I, 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 I ran him ragged. He was, he was very upset with me, but he talked to me. I give him credit because he continued to talk to me. And then I, and then in Dece and then in December 19, December 3rd, 1975, I was in the Detroit free press or newsroom uh, working on my story about McMaster's goon squad. And we got the word that an informant named Ralph Picardo had named Hoffa's killers. Um, he he had claimed that that he had received a visitation from one of them uh, and while he was in prison in Trenton State Penitentiary, and Picardo said that he was told by Steve Andretta, one of the alleged co-conspirators, that Hoffa had been murdered in Detroit, stuffed into a 55-gallon drum, loaded onto a gateway transportation truck, and shipped back to New Jersey. And he had flipped and turned state's evidence in November. Uh, the grand jury was called with Picardo's information in mind. The, uh, and, they, and the FBI said to him during the debrief, they said, do you know who killed Hoffa? And he said, no, I, I, Andretta didn't tell me who killed Hoffa, but I know as a fact, because I was a driver, Tony Pro, Provenzano, I was part of that crowd, that, that uh, Tony Pro had put a contract out on Hoffa in 1973, 1974. And then the FBI said, did he say where in New Jersey, they took the body. And he said, no, he didn't tell me that. But again, based on experience, whenever we whack somebody, we put them at Brother Moscato's dump in Jersey City, New Jersey. And so the FBI got a search warrant for Brother Moscato's dump. It was this, um, you know, 50 plus acre landfill, uh, toxic waste dump. It was hell on earth, quicksand rats. Uh, it was a horrible place. And it was, and it was, and it was run by a guy named Phil Moscato. Phil Moscato was a soldier in the Vito Genovese crime family. So fast forward, I went out and I did, you know, I interviewed Hoffa's killers exclusively. I interviewed Sal Bergulio, who I think killed Jimmy Hoffa, um, his brother Gabe, uh, Steve Andretta, Tom Andretta, along with Bill Buffalino and Sammy Provenzano. And it was really quite a day, three and a half hours on tape. My interview with Tom Andretta was over the phone uh, that same day. Uh, he, he was the one person who couldn't make it. And then uh, a friend of mine, David Korn from The Nation magazine in 2007 and I were investigating a crooked judge. And that crooked judge was getting payoffs from some mafia guys. 
And when I, I, I received some paperwork as to who the mafia guy who was the payoff man, it was Phil, brother Moscato. And so Dave said, what do you want to do? And I said, geez, I, <laughs> I think I'm going to call him, see if he'll talk to me. So I picked up the phone. I called brother Moscato up in New Jersey, um, major organized crime figure in, 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 New, in, in uh, New Jersey. One of the biggest loan sharks on the East Coast in his heyday. And I said to him, I said, listen, I'm, I'm investigating so-and-so, you know, payoffs to so-and-so judge, judge so-and-so. And he said, uh, I, I said, can I come and see you? And he said, sure. So he was very pleasant. I went up, I went to his home. He couldn't have been nicer. We, we uh, went, uh, we had, his wife made breakfast for us. We went to his country club. We uh, went to his restaurant. It was really quite a day. But he was giving me information with the frequency that a kosher butcher sells pork chops. <laughs> so I stayed in touch with him over a seven-year period of time from 2007 to 2014. And during that seven-year period of time, he told me that in Act 1 of the Hoffa case, that it was Vito Giacalone who picked up Jimmy Hoffa at the Red Fox and took him to the scene of the murder. And Act 2, at the scene of the murder, the person who killed Hoffa was, in fact, Sal Bergoglio. And then in Act 3, Hoffa's body was uh, uh, put onto a gateway transportation truck and shipped to New Jersey, where Moscato told me on tape that the body was buried at his dump. Um, then um, I, I then um, fast forward into 2019. I got a call from a guy named Paul Coppola. Paul Coppola Jr. And Paul Coppola Jr. was the son of Paul Coppola Sr., who was the co-owner of Brother Moscato's dump in Jersey City. I wasn't really hip to this at the time. Uh, I knew that the the formal name of the, the dump was PJP Landfill, and it turned out to be P as in Philip, J as in John Hanley, who was just a political cutout, and Paul Coppola Sr. So it was really P and P Landfill. And uh, Philip was the mob guy, the made mob guy. And Paul really ran the dump. He was not a made guy himself, but he was certainly connected. And he, you know, he knew who, who, who he took orders from. And so uh, Paul Coppola Jr. said that told me that his brother knew, possibly knew where Hoffa was buried. And so I, um, obviously I wanted to talk to this guy. It took me about seven months to finally get it together. We had six, seven calls in September, 2019. And, um, we, um, um, you know, we met, uh, on September 28th, I went up to New Jersey, met in Secaucus, uh, he and I, and, and his girlfriend, the love of his life, Joy DiBiase, um, had dinner on Saturday night. And during dinner, he said, you know, I'm going to go back to PJP, tomorrow. I haven't been there in a long time tomorrow morning. And I said, Hey, you're taking me with you, man. And so he picked me up at my hotel. We drove to brother Moscato's dump. Uh, it was, uh, it was a Sunday morning. It was, it was, uh, it was a beautiful day, but it was a little eerie to be in this place under the Pulaski skyway, uh, which connects uh, Jersey city to Newark. And he took me to this area. Uh, right up against the Hearts Mountain building, which runs adjacent to the bridge. And so he said, I said, to, so I had, a, I had a body camera on and I had, a cam, I had a camera in my hand. I had two cameras on him. And I said, so show me. And so he showed me a area that was about the size of a baseball field, a baseball diamond, let's say. Uh, not the whole field, but a baseball diamond, like 
a little league baseball diamond, in fact, 60 by 60 by 60 by 60. And so um, he said, this is where it is. And he was standing there at that place. So um, meantime, I got caught up in your work, Scott. And the thing that really put the hook in me was that when I first got into this thing back in, you know, right after Hoffa disappeared, I got hired by NBC. The person I worked for was Irving R. Levine, who was a great labor economics reporter for the network. He was the guy who always, he was the bald guy who always wore the bow tie. He was a very dapper guy. And that was my boss. And the first interview we went to was an interview with a guy named Lenny Schultz. And Lenny Schultz was a kind of a forgotten guy in this thing. When, um, when I was writing my book, The Hoffa Wars, and Steve Brill, who was my competitor back then uh, with his book, The Teamsters, um, both of us had received letters threatening to sue us if we named Lenny Schultz as being one of the three people Hoffa was planning to meet. And so I talked to my lawyers, and we couldn't figure out a connection to, uh, uh, to Lenny Schultz, and so we dropped him. We said Hoffa was to meet uh, Tony Provenzano, Tony Giacalone, and a third man. And, um, and both Steve and I pretty sure did that. Pretty sure he did too. And so Lenny Schultz was just sort of hung out to dry. Then you started with your reporting, and then you came up with this fabulous story where Vito Giacalone – just like Brother Moscato had told me, you were told that Vito Giacalone, apart with your own sources, mm-hmm. that Vito Giacalone picked up Hoffa. He was taken to the uh, Lenny Schultz's house where um, there had been a murder the year before. I think Harvey Leach. Yep. Joshua Door Furniture. Joshua Door Furniture Company. And that, that Hoffa had been murdered there. And then his body was turned over to whom? Rolla McMaster. Now the thing about Roland McMaster had when I was when I was back, you know, going going back in reverse to December fourth, nineteen seventy five, at the grand jury. When the names came out of the people who were involved in the Hoffa killing, it was Sal Bergulio, Gabe Bergulio, Tommy Andretta, and Stevie Andretta, and I was clinically depressed because Roland McMaster wasn't in the trick bag. And then my uh, the city editor John Opendahl came up to my desk and he said. There is a fifth guy. Take one guess who it is. I was out like a shot. I ran down the steps and everything else, went to the federal building, went up to the the grand jury, and there was Roland McMaster, the fifth guy called before the grand jury, whose alibi that day of the day of the murder was that he was with his brother-in-law, Stan Barr, who was the head of Gateway Transportation Company. And then in the course of time, I interviewed a guy named Don Wells uh, shortly, I guess, in 1975. And Don Wells told me that, uh, you know, that he had one of his drivers was a driver who had worked for uh, who had worked for Roland McMaster. And now he was working with Gateway. And I said, what was his name? And he said his name was Jim Shaw. And so Jim Shaw was a long haul driver for Gateway. And so uh, we were in a position where, you know, I had I had McMaster, his alibi the day of the murder was that he was with the head of Gateway Transportation Steel Division in Detroit. And but I did not go with when, for my book, The Hoffa Wars in 1978, I did not go. And it was a mistake on my part. I did not go all the way down the line with Picardo. I went all the way down the line, except for the body was moved to New Jersey. Uh, a mafia guy from Chicago, I, I interviewed a guy named Chucky Cromaldi. And Chucky Cromaldi was a hitman for, um, oh God, what was that guy's name? Sam Giancana. Some mob guy in Chicago. And, and Cromaldi told me, listen, 
I, I had gotten to him through a fr- somebody he was very friendly to, and so he was he was being nice to me. And he told me that it was his information that Hoffa's body had been crushed and smelted, and Chucky O'Brien had made it had, had supposedly made a, a crack that Hoffa's body was now a hubcap or a fender, and there were a couple other uh, statements off the cuff statements by some people who were involved indicating a smelting process. Well, Gateway's terminal in Dearborn was right next to the Ford River Rouge plant. So I embraced the Hoffa was crushed and smelted thing as opposed to going to New Jersey. Once again, it was a mistake on my part, but what turned me around was when I talked, when I interviewed Brother Moscato, when he says the body was, is, was buried at my dump. So Frank Coppola, I'm at the dump with Frank Coppola in September, September 29, 2019. I, I record all of this information. I ask Frank, I, I interview him. I sit down with a long interview on videotape with him. And then I say, I want you to execute a sworn statement on this. So he executes the sworn statement on October 7th, notarized under penalty of perjury. He offers to take a polygraph test and to cooperate fully with the law enforcement community. So I cut, he, he, he lived down in Florida and he was visiting joy in New Jersey. And so he was coming back in January of 2020. And so I went to see him. Uh, I said, come on, let me take you guys to dinner. So I went up there just to pay my respects to Frank. And we went to some sushi buffet joint over in Secaucus. And while we were there, Frank collapsed at the table and I grabbed him as he was falling. Joy was crying, and it was it was a very nasty scene. He he had some respiratory problems. In fact, he had a tank of oxygen with him. And I said, "Come on, let's go to the hospital." And he said, "No, no, I just need to I just need to lie down and sleep for a little bit." So Joy went and got the car. I helped him to the car. Almost had to carry him to the car. And um, um, he refused to go to the hospital that night, but he did go the next day. I think it was the next day Joy took him. Uh, he was put into a drug-induced coma, and then he died without ever saying another word on March 16th, uh, 2020. So here's, but thank God I had everything on film, and I had a sworn statement. The only problem was we couldn't we couldn't get his cooperation with the FBI, and we certainly never took the polygraph test. And so, because of the pandemic, because of all the chaos in the Trump Justice Department, because of all the problems with the FBI at the time and that they were under siege. There were a lot of reasons why I wanted to go back and and do a a ground radar thing uh, to examine that baseball field, that little league baseball field, the 60 by 60 by 60 by 60 little league baseball diamond. And finally, I, uh, there was a, there was a problem that come up. I had been doing some work with Fox news with Eric Sean, never got paid. I've never taken a cent from Fox News. In fact, on the Coppola thing, I have never accepted any money at all. I've said the only way I'll take any money on this is if the body is recovered and if it's positively identified as Jimmy Hoffa. At that point, I want everything. Or until then, I want nothing. I don't, I don't deserve anything until this is proven to be the fact. And so, um, so I had, I had done some stuff with, um, with Eric, Eric had embraced the Frank Sheeran theory that Frank Sheeran was the uh, person who killed Hoffa. Really, Eric was really at the epicenter of the Hoffa case. He had really kept it alive for a long time because he was really the champion of Charlie Brandt's book, which was the book upon which he, the, he's the one who gave the book that they based the Irishman on to Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese. Right, exactly right, Scott. 
And it was really, it was really, it was really Eric who really supercharged the whole Irishman, Frank Sheeran phenomena, which was nonsense. I mean, it was, um, I mean, I interviewed uh, Frank Sheeran back in 1977, I think it was. And I, um, you know, he was a fascinating guy. I think he possibly was an eyewitness at the murder, but he was not the guy who killed Hoffa. He was a guy who Hoffa trusted. He definitely would have gotten in a car with Hoffa. And I think that it, it goes as, as that's as good. That's as far as it goes. I had, I had, a, I throw a, I host a, a dinner for authors. I have for 33 years, a twice a year dinner for authors here in Washington. And De Niro wanted to come to our dinners. He was friendly with one of our authors. And so the author brought him and, you know, he was quite a hit. He was, a, couldn't have been a nicer guy. He was, he was friendly. He was, he was, he was terrific. And, but one of the reasons why he came is he wanted to talk to me. And so uh, late, later on in the evening, he and I and our mutual friend, the author, Gus Rousseau, who's another mob reporter, uh, we went to a corner of the table, uh, a corner table in the restaurant, and we had a chat. And it was very, very, it got very hostile very quickly because I told him that he was getting conned by, uh, by uh, Charlie Brandt's book. Charlie Brand, a very fine person, everything else. And from the grave. He was getting conned from Frank Sheeran from the grave. Yeah, yeah. And um, it was, and he said, I'm not getting conned. And it, and it led to a very, very, I mean, here's a guy I would really wanted to get along with. And we didn't get along at all, not well at all. But when this came up, when the Irishman came up, that I had warned Sheeran, uh, that I had warned De Niro that this was garbage, that he was peddling. Uh, he said some very nice things about me, no doubt about it, but he insisted that I was wrong. But when he found out that I was also saying that Hoffa's body had been moved to New Jersey, um, he, he he came on pretty strong against me. There's a, there's an interview that he did on Netflix with Joe Pesci and, and Al Pacino and Martin Scorsese and uh, the cast, and where he specifically said there's a guy going around saying Hoffa's body was moved to New Jersey, which is absolutely ridiculous. So if I'm wrong about this, Robert De Niro will be one, among the many people who's going to dance on my head. But you, but Dan, let, let's let's so, let's call a spade a spade. You're not just yeah. a guy. You're not some random person that was coming up with a conspiracy theory. You are the guy when it comes to Hoffa research and 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 exploring the ins and outs well, of what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. So I, just I, you know, on, that, that on its own has merit and and means right. that the theory has merit. I agree. I, and you know, but I have been wrong. I have been, like I said, in my book, I went with the crushed and smelted theory. I, there was a thing in Detroit, uh, where some guy who had information about Roland McMaster contacted me. I thought it was garbage from the beginning, but I, I was there in Detroit when I met the guy, I, you know, I, I figure, you know, every five years or so, I allow myself to be put in a position where I could be conned by somebody who's got some information about where, Hoffa is. If the timeline's right and the cast of characters are right, I don't mind, you know, spending a couple of weeks and maybe throwing away a couple of thousand dollars running it down. And I did in this guy's case, and I ended up getting conned. There was a there was a front page article in the Detroit News, uh, not just uh, not just above the fold, but above the, the 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 masthead of the Detroit News. It was written by Paul Egan, a very very fine investigative journalist, uh, now with the Free Press. And, um, and, and the story did not fault me for, you know, being, you know, getting the runaround because I understood that this was very possible. I was getting the runaround on this thing, but it kind of credited me with being the dogged guy who would really pursue this. Cause I am one of the few people along with you and your dogged work, your excellent, your excellent work. 
And um, we are two guys who sort of go for it. And so you are you you are without a doubt, Dan, you are Captain Ahab and Jimmy Hoffa is your white right. whale. That I am a perfect, Ahab and, and, and the perfect analogy. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Let me stop you for one second. Um, and then we'll, sure. we'll pick up. I just want to do a quick, uh, maybe like a five minute primer on we've, we've thrown out a lot of names and a lot of places and a lot of events. And I just want to make sure that everyone has their score or scorecard correct. And Jimmy, right. Um, let's just try to give the audience, assume that they don't know what happened with Jimmy Hoffa or don't know all of the, the, uh, specifics. Um, why don't we just give them a quick, you know, two, three minute rundown of, of this case. It's obviously the most iconic unsolved mystery sure. in American history. It's firmly embedded in the fabric of Metro Detroit. It's reached mythological, uh, you know, status. The mythology is yeah, just insane. Yeah. It feeds on itself. If you, if you live in Detroit and you've grown up in, in this, in this area since he disappeared in 75, it seems like every year, every six months, every couple years, there's a, there's another dig, there's another search. It almost becomes a rite of passage to go out and, and observe these <laughs> digs. Um, right, and, some, right. and sometimes it takes kind of a, um, a tailgating type aura uh, environment where you got all these people pulling out uh, deck chairs and, and, and radios and, and they're grilling their sausages by the side of the road where the FBI is digging for Jimmy Hoffa. Really, those are really right. in Oakland County right. or Oakland Township, yeah. But uh, Jimmy, why don't you just kind of break down for the audience kind of what the Jimmy Hoffa story is in a nutshell. Well, I think you have to go back to the politics of the situation. So Hoffa is convicted on, uh, was it bribery? Well, first, let's say Jimmy Hoffa was the president yeah, of the, the Teamsters, Teamsters Union. International Brotherhood. He was, I, without question, the, the definitive labor icon of the 20th century. He was, in terms of power, he was almost like a head of state, um, was someone that was on television almost every night. And he was a, uh, a farm boy from Indiana that had come to... Detroit with his mom, uh, had kind of risen through the ranks of organized labor from a very young age to the point where he made a deal with the Detroit mob, um, and the, the Detroit mob uh, became his benefactors and put him on a fast track. Well, can, can I add something yeah, here? Can I yes, add something please. here? The, um, the, uh, it's important to note that there were two great labor leaders, two very powerful labor leaders in Detroit at yep, the time. One was Jimmy Hoffa. And the other was Walter Ruther right. from the United Auto Workers Union. And you had, and Walter Ruther was great. I mean, oh, Walter Ruther was a great man who was not corrupted. Jimmy Hoffa had a problem where there was a guy named Denny Lewis, who was the brother of John L. Lewis, who was president of the CIO before the AFL-CIO merged. And Denny Lewis tried to raid the Teamster Surf in Detroit. And Hoffa and, and, and Denny Lewis's guys were a lot tougher and more motivated, let's say, than the Teamsters were. And so Hoffa had to go to the mob in order to get the muscle he needed to run Denny Lewis's guys out of town, which is what he did. And it was that pact with Hoffa, which turned him from potentially a great union leader like Walter Ruther to really nothing more than a labor racketeer. He was compromised. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, okay. so Jimmy. And, and up until that point, I think a lot of people are unaware of this, up until that point, to a large extent, organized crime was working with management, not with labor up until that point when you look right, at Harry exactly. Bennett and going back. Um, and, and by the way, I, I don't want to digress here too much, but I, I think that, that the Detroit 
mafia tried to assassinate Walter Ruther yeah, at one did, point. They, they you, did, Santo Peron. Santo, uh, yeah. Santo Peron. Yeah. Santo Peron. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, I thought I was wondering if Dan subscribed to that. that it was actually, too. I think it was Tino Lombardo yes, who was Santo's Absolutely. bodyguard that actually shot Ruther. And then Tino Lombardo ended up being killed yeah, by the Jackalone. No, by the Jackaloni brothers. Yeah for the mini war that erupted here in the 60s between the old generation and the new generation with Santo Perone and Pete Licavoli representing right. the, the old guard and the Jackalonis representing the new yeah, guard. Yeah, there were some car bombings. Was yeah. Lombardo killed in Detroit? Let me also killed? interject here. Okay. Just let me interject here that when it comes to the Detroit Mafia, I completely bow and yield <laughs> to Scotty when it comes to the Detroit Mafia. There is no greater expert on the Detroit Mafia than Scott. So Thank when you, Scott Dan. talks about the Detroit Mafia, it is gospel Take it to the bank. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, um, eventually, uh, so Hoffa's in deep in terms of labor racketeering. He ends up getting convicted, and that was a whole <laughs> other story we could get into. Him that. and his the war trial. with Bobby Kennedy. Right, right. He was convicted on jury tampering and yeah. pension fraud. Right. He right. was jury tampering in Chattanooga, pension fraud in Chicago. Goes to, he was sentenced to um, total, um, I guess it was 13 years in prison. So he goes away in 67. And then he gets he gets pardoned by Richard Nixon. In 70. Which is also interesting because you have a Republican president with the Teamsters, which you don't really see, <laughs> you don't really hear about that anymore. That kind of marriage, which is interesting. And then in when he's itself. and then when he's in prison, he has a falling out with a former ally by the name of Anthony Provenzano, Pro Tony Pro, which we, we uh, Dan brought up right. in, in in this episode already. But I, but I think the key is that one of the conditions of the pardon, which he was trying to challenge in court, was that he could not uh, assume the presidency. Again. For like 10 years after his release. Right. He could not seek it. He could not seek it. Right. He could he not could. seek the union presidency. Right. right. And that was key because the key at the time with the Teamsters at that time, it wasn't there was there wasn't a direct election of the president, the general president of the union and its general executive board. It was you elected uh, delegates to the Teamsters convention, which was held every five years. And it was from that body of delegates that they elected the general president and the general executive board. So in order to be considered to be an officer of the union on the international, you had to be among those delegates, which meant that you had to have some local office. So in Detroit, there was a huge fight over control of Local 299 because that's where Hoffa was trying to use use Local 299 as his base. Yep. He had his guy, Dave Johnson, in as president of the union. Uh, Dick Fitzsimmons, in the, in the power-sharing decision that was made, Dick Fitzsimmons, Frank Fitzsimmons' son, Frank Fitzsimmons being Hoffa's hand-picked successor with whom he had a very quick falling out after he went to jail, who was running the union and uh, Dick Fitzsimmons was the vice president. And so you had a situation where um, Hoffa had to get a union office in order to be a delegate to that convention. That's what he needed to do. And so, but, but, but the, but the situation with regard to the commutation restrictions that Jimmy just referred to is, was such that he couldn't do it. But, also, if he was, but he was in litigation on that. So what Hoffa decided to do was he would continue to work with Dave Johnson to try to get Dave Johnson at a position where he could resign. Jimmy Hoffa could take over. He would be a delegate to the convention. He would be welcomed by open arms by the delegates and everything else. What Frank Fitzsimmons decided to do was to ratchet up the violence in Local 299 using Roland McMaster and his goon squad yep. with the bombing of Dick Fitzsimmons' car, the uh, the shooting of George Roxborough, the, the bombing of Dave Johnson's of Otto boat. Wendell's, pardon <laughs> yeah. me, the yeah. the the bombing of Dave Johnson's boat in Grozeal. Yeah, 
Dave Johnson's cabin cruiser, yeah. right. There was there were a whole slew of things that were going on. And that put Fitzsimmons in a position where he could use the Constitution that Hoffa rewrote in 1961, which gave him unilateral permission to take a renegade union that was being filled with violence and throw it into trusteeship. So if Hoffa had won his litigation and had gotten a and had gotten Dave Johnson to move out and that he could step in as president of local 299 which would make him a delegate to the convention and eligible to be president Frank Fitzsimmons by re- using Roland McMaster to ratchet up the violence in local 299 was would would have been allowed to throw that throw local 299 in trusteeship which would have made Hoffa ineligible to run so Hoffa became an informant Hoffa saw the situation as hopeless so he became an informant. He started talking to grand juries. He started talking to congressional committees. He was talking to reporters. The, the last interview he did, as I understand it, was with this, this fabulous interview with Jerry Stanicky, yeah. who was with WXYZ at the time. And it was in Playboy magazine. It, was, it is an out-of-this-world interview. And I think it was conducted with him in June 1975, and I think it was published probably sometime, you know, probably in November 1975, several months after Hoffa disappeared. But the interview is amazing, where, where Hoffa is pointing his fingers at all the people, the mob guys and everything else that he believed had double-crossed him. Not only Frank Fitzsimmons, but mob guys. Right. And so uh, he was threatening the wrong Jerry people. Stanicky, he was threatening the wrong people, and he was talking about uh, people out of school, and he was, uh, he was putting himself deeply at risk as a result of that. He was, I think, in the end, Hoffa was killed because he was talking. How far was he willing to go, do you think, in terms of his informant status? Was he just going to inform on people that he was, had, he was aggravated with, or do you think he was going to um, you know, tell? Because Hoffa knew a lot about a lot of different things, drug trafficking. Stuff, where a lot of bodies were burned. Yeah, Cuba. In, in, the, Stanicky, like Cuba. in the Stanicky interview, he's talking about the JFK murder. That's yeah. what I mean. He's right. talking about the JFK murder. Okay, so, so he was willing he to. Was, he was, you know, it, it was, you know, in my mind, and I was the first to say this in the Hoff Wars in 1978, that the murder of John Kennedy uh, was, the, the, it was, was arranged and executed by Jimmy Hoffa, uh, Carlos Marcello, the mob boss of New Orleans, the Santo Traficante, the mob boss of Tampa, Florida. And uh, I took a ton of grief for that when the Hoffa Awards came out because I was the first person to say this was a mob hit specifically by Hoffa, Marcello, and Traficante. And then about about two months after my book came out, the U.S. House Select Committee on Assassinations opened its investigation. And a year later, a year after my book came out in July 1979, the House committee came out with a report saying that Hoffa, Marcello, and Traficante had motive, means, and opportunity to kill the president. And the chief counsel of the committee, Bob Blakey, a very respected law professor at Notre Dame, probably the world's expert on organized he crime. He wrote the RICO the, statute. Yeah. The Justice Department, exactly, Scotty. He was the guy who wrote the Racketeer Influence Corrupt Organizations Act legislation. And, and Bob Blakey said, the mob did it. It's a historical fact. Um, I still, to this day, believe that Hoffa, Marcello, and Traficante whacked the president in, 19, in 1963. And I believe that that Hoffa was in a position to make statements about that later in, 19, in 1990. Frank Rodano, who was the attorney for Hoffa, Marcello, and Traficante, came out and said that I was right. And that the committee was right in its final conclusion, that it was Hoffa, Marcello, and Traficante, that Rodano said that he had gone 
he had that Jimmy Hoffa had given him the message that he wanted Kennedy hit because he wanted to silence Bobby Kennedy. He's with no John Kennedy. There is no Bobby Kennedy who was as attorney general was relentlessly pursuing Bobby Kennedy. When Bobby Kennedy was on the, was chief counsel of the Senate rackets committee from 57 to 1960, he was eating mob guys for breakfast. Yeah, and the, mo- and, and the mob had Kennedy was his- elected and he was, and he was, and he was, and he became attorney general of the United States. Bobby Kennedy started eating mob guys for, lunch and dinner too this guy was the greatest crime fighter this country's ever had and the irony is that the mob had gotten his brother elected president which allowed his brother to then tap him as attorney general i'm going to disagree with that Uh, the the mob candidate was richard nixon i mean the money went to richard nixon uh you know hoffa had a half a million dollars that went to richard nixon i know as a fact that tony provenzano was part of that and the irishman they tried to portray it as being that Russell Buffalino and Tony Pro and JFK. all these guys were supporting John Kennedy. No, man. I mean, listen, Sam Giancana was identified by the Kennedys in August of 1960, three months before the election, as public enemy number, number one. one. Yeah. Did, is Giancana going to turn around and say, yeah, man, this is my candidate for president? What, what the mafia was constantly trying to do was they knew they couldn't penetrate the Kennedys. They couldn't bribe them. They couldn't get them off their anti-mafia thing. So what they tried to do is they put out a whole bunch of disinformation and they tried to compromise him. And that, you know, Giancana's girlfriend, uh, 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 Judith Exner, Judith Campbell Exner, you know, Frank Sinatra, who was a Giancana stooge, uh, you know, fixed John Kennedy up with her. And sadly, John Kennedy had an affair with Sam Giancana's mistress in an attempt to blackmail the White House. That's what that was all about. It was an attempt to blackmail the White House, and it didn't work. The blackmail the, the blackmail operation did not work. Bobby Kennedy continued to pursue the mafia, specifically Hoffa, Marcello, and Traficanti, and Giancana. And um, in the end, um, you know, John Kennedy wound up dead, and, I, and, uh, and, and Bobby Kennedy that day thought that he was, his pursuit of the mob was responsible for uh, for his brother's murder. He believed, Bobby Kennedy went to his grave believing that it was the mob, Hoffa and the mob, who killed his brother. Let me ask something. I don't want to go off the rails too much here, Dan, but do you think there's any connection with what happened to Hoffa and the murders of Roselli and Giancana around the same time, 75? Because we're all, we're, they were all part of that Cuba, you know, situation. It all happened between June and August. Yeah. One of my best sources... One of my best sources was Ed Grady Parton. Ed Grady Parton was the key government witness against Hoffa at his 1964 jury tampering trial in Chattanooga. And um, he was a guy who came out from behind the curtains and appeared as a witness. I mean, this was the guy who, who was inside Hoffa's camp. He was the door watcher for, for Hoffa while they were in Nashville for the Tesla trial, which was the trial for which uh, Hoffa decided to tamper with the jury. And then he was indicted. So they moved the trial out of Nashville. They moved it to Chattanooga. And that's where he was convicted. Again, the key witness was Grady Park. Grady Park was one of my key sources when I was writing the Hoffa Wars. My mentor, Walter Sheridan, who was Bobby Kennedy's right-hand man, introduced me to him. It was, And the reason why uh, Ed, Ed Parton had flipped and turned state's evidence was because Jimmy Hoffa was plotting to kill Bobby Kennedy. Um, he won, and, 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 when, and when it became clear that uh, the, you know that that this was very disturbing to to uh, Ed Parton. Uh, what what was particularly disturbing to him was that Jimmy Hoffa just didn't want to kill Bobby Kennedy, but he wanted to kill his entire family. 
And it was at that point that, that Ed Parton decided to flip and turn state, state's evidence. He went, he went to my mentor uh, long before I knew him. Um, uh, I was a child at the time in 1964. I was 14 at the time. And, uh, but Walter then uh, flipped Parton. And again, he was the key witness against Hoffa in the jury tampering trial. But then Carlos Marcello said, you know, listen, he was talking to an informant. And then that same month when Parton flipped in September 1962, and he said, listen, if, you know, if we, if we kill, if we kill uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy, you know, everyone's going to know who did it. You know, we got to kill the guy who controls Bobby Kennedy. And then uh, that same month, September 1962, Santo Traficante, the mafia boss of Tampa, said, to an informant, Jose Alamon, who testified under oath about this, that he they were talking about Kenny and his re-election bid in 1964, and and uh, and Traficante said, no, Jose, he's going to be hit, and Hoffa's making the arrangements for the murder, and so I was told I I was I was told to to deal with the CIA mafia plots to kill Castro to get into this at least look at it. And so I met a guy named Bob Mayhew, and Bob Mayhew was the right-hand man to Howard Hughes. And according to the Church Committee investigation, which started right after uh, after Nixon resigned, um, Mayhew was was the became the the liaison between the CIA and the mafia, uh, a, between a guy named James O'Connell, who was the godfather to his son, and to Johnny Roselli, who was a Chicago gangster. Uh, who was kind of viewed as a dapper guy, and it was through the combination of of, of O'Connor and and Mayhew and Roselli that they brought Santo Traficante and Cham Giancana into the CIA mafia plots. And um, I said to I said to Mayhew when I interviewed him, I spent a lot of time with Mayhew, and uh, I said to him. What was going on before then? Because I knew there were things going on before. For instance, Russell Buffalino um, had had a had lost four hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars as a result of the Castro's takeover of the of one of the casinos down in, in um, down in Havana that uh, that uh, that uh, that Buffalino had an interest in, and that. He was involved with two Lucchese guys. Uh, one was Jimmy Pl- Jimmy Plumeri. Another guy was Sal Granello. Uh, uh, two capo uh, two capos in the in the Tommy Lucchese crime family. And then there were two guys from Pittsburgh, the boss of Pittsburgh, John LaRocca, and his underboss, a guy named Gabriel Manorino. And so it was these five: Buffalino, Manorino, uh, Buffalino, Manorino, LaRocca. Plumeri, Granello, these five guys were guys who were involved in the early days of the CIA mafia plots to kill Castro. And the original liaison between the CIA and the mafia was Jimmy Hoffa, who had a lot of organizing operations going on in the Dominican Republic, Cuba, Puerto Rico, and in other places in and around the Caribbean. And so, yeah, to me, the CIA mafia plots evolved into the plot against the president of the United States. So once again, Frank Regano, who was the attorney for Hoffa, Marcello, and Traficani, came out and corroborated all of that. And um, um, so what you're saying, Jimmy, is is correct. It it did have a lot to do with it. Sam Giancana was murdered on, I think it was June 27th, 1975. 
Hoffa was murdered on July 30th, 1975. And then Johnny Roselli was murdered, I think, on August 6th, 1976. It was a guy named Leo Macheri, and he was murdered, I think, in August of 1975. Yeah, but Johnny Roselli was murdered, I think, on August in August of 1976. August 9th, 76. Handsome right. Johnny Roselli. Yeah, he was the Chicago Mob's West <laughs> Handsome Coast Johnny Roselli. representative. <laughs> he got chopped up, and he was found floating in a 55-gallon In, in Biscayne Bay in Miami. Yeah. In Biscayne Bay, exactly, exactly. The, the beauty of this is that there are conspiracy theories, and then there are conspiracies. <laughs> Scotty and I investigate organized crime, which by definition is conspiracy crime. It's enterprise crime. It's, it's crime by association. So there are ridiculous conspiracies like the QAnon people who are running around claiming that, you know, that, uh, that there are some satanic <laughs> pedophile ring that includes prominent Democrats right, exactly. and Hollywood stars. Then there are legitimate conspiracies like the things that Scotty and I uh, investigate for a living. Well, when you're talking about Hoffa and the mob, you're talking about conspiracy theories that have conspiracy theories that have conspiracy theories. Right. So let's just uh, right. quickly right. go back and say Hoffa gets out of prison. I believe it was December of 71. Um, and, he, right. and he had given part of the commutation order was that he had to give up control of the Teamsters. So at that point, he hands things over. No, to, he was already out. He, he had lost. He had, no, I'm saying, uh, no, what I'm saying is while he, was in, while he was in prison as part of getting the commutation, didn't he have to agree? No, I think he didn't know that. I thought he, he was, I don't think he, wasn't that part of the. Well, he, he gave up the Teamsters no, in no, 70. No, what happened was he was convicted. He was convicted in 1964 in, in Chattanooga for pension, uh, for, for jury tamperings and in Chicago for pension fraud. Then in 66, there was a Teamsters convention where he was, even though he was convicted, he was still, uh, he was appealing it before the Supreme Court, and he was reelected as president of the Teamsters Union in 1966. So that's five-year term. So the next election was in, in July 1971. And it was at July 19. So he, when he went to jail, he appointed Frank Fitzsimmons as his caretaker. But then in July 1971, while Hoffa was still in jail, there was a convention, and you were not allowed to run for president of a labor union while you were in jail. And so Frank Fitzsimmons ran on his own right and won. Instead of being Hoffa's caretaker, he was now in his own right the president of the Teamsters Union. Hoffa had lost his presidency. And then in December of 1971, as you guys pointed out, Nixon commutes Hoffa's sentence and with the with the proviso that he not seek union office until 1980 when he was going to be like 70 years old or something. But like didn't Hoffa say that the, he felt that they slipped that in there, right? That he didn't know that. Wasn't that Hoffa's argument that he that that the the he wouldn't, have agreed, he wouldn't have agreed right. to give up the the office if he right. didn't that, realize that he was going to get it the back. The attorney general I, slipped listen, that Jimmy in. Hoffa, the last I, I had I had a I had a, a source named Ed Edwards who was an inmate with with uh, Hoffa at Lewisburg who witnessed the Provenzano fight. And Jimmy Hoffa was so desperate to get out of jail, he would have run over his mother with his yeah. car okay. to okay. do it. And he was very fond of his mother. <laughs> he, he, this guy was, this guy was, he wanted out of jail. It, it, no matter what he would have had to sign, no matter what the proviso was, he would have got it. But he did have second thoughts about this because he decided, he, he thought he was being dissed by Fitzsimmons and the others and, and the Teamster High Command. And he wanted to come back. This whole thing, and I think that's true that he was claiming, oh, I didn't know about it, but it didn't matter. He would have done anything to get out of jail. He was still looking at another eight years of yeah, jail. Yeah, that's a good point. And, right? and he wanted out. He would have done anything to get out of jail. And just as bad as he wanted out of jail, once he got out of jail, he was as obsessed with reclaiming the Teamsters presidency. And it a lot of times ran counter to his own interest for his personal safety. So let's fast forward uh, to 74, 75. 
Hoffa goes on a, uh, we, we alluded to it uh, previously in, in this episode, goes on a, a media tour telling everyone that he's going to reclaim the Teamsters and cleanse the union of mob influence, the same mob influence that had got him into power in the first place. He's going right. on national and he, television. And he was using, he's going on right. 60 and minutes and, and as a threatened. platform. He was, he was involved with a prison reform group. He was going out with a prison reform group run by a guy named Ed Lor- uh, Levinson, I think his name was. And that was his platform for going out and doing these speeches and everything else. And so he, it was, to, it was to keep himself in the public eye where he went out and, oh, yes, let's talk about prison reform. Now let's talk about the teachers, which is really what I'm here to talk about. Yeah. And he would use this as a platform to trash Frank Fitzsimmons and his other enemies. I mean, accusing of being involved with gangsters. I mean, Jimmy Hoffa accusing Frank Fitzsimmons of being involved in gangsters yeah, that's is rich. about as hypocritical as yeah. you could get because he was one of the mafia's all-time biggest stooges. I know the, the lore about Hoffa and the independence of the mob. That's, that's nonsense. You know, the opening line of, of my book, The Hoffa Wars, in chapter one, is Jimmy Hoffa's most valuable contribution to the American labor movement came at the moment he stopped breathing on July 30th, 1975. And the reason for that was because up until 1975 and Hoffa's disappearance, the federal war against organized crime had been, for all intents and purposes, dormant. It did not exist to all intents and purposes. But as a result of that 1975 murder of Jimmy Hoffa, everybody was investigating the mob after that. It launched the RICO statute as a weapon for the federal government to go after the mob because That's the right. RICO it, statute it, had it, existed. Blakey before. had written it in right. 1970, I think, right. and it just sat there. Right. But as, as Scotty just pointed out, after Hoffa's disappearance, that's when they supercharged RICO, and that's where the big prosecutions of the big mob guys began. And it was also the beginning of the – when William Webster became um, FBI. FBI director in 1978, I think it was, that's when they started using these big sting operations, my porn, uh, bry lab, uh, straw, man. straw man, straw man. Uh, it was um, it was astounding at the war that existed against organized crime by probably under one of the most unlikely presidents, Jimmy Carter. Yeah. And um, and and his and his attorney general, Richard Thornburg, who I thought was a terrific attorney general. He did a hell of a job. And William Webster, who is my all time favorite FBI director. He was a he was a you know, he was a Republican judge from St. Louis, I think. And he was uh, a very respected guy who did a hell of a job as FBI director and really went after the mob. I think Bill Webster was probably the greatest crime fighter. After Bobby Kennedy, he was the greatest crime fighter in this country. So if, if Jimmy Hoffa was so compromised, why why do you think the, the Italian mafia preferred Fitzsimmons over, uh, was it a public relations thing or? Fitzsimmons was a puppet. It was because in, More when, of a when puppet. Hoffa rewrote the Constitution, and, and when Hoffa wrote, rewrote the Constitution in 1961, remember when, when, when Hoffa, there was a Senate Rackets Committee started in 1957 and 1960. And then in 1957, when Hoffa was elected president, the AFL-CIO threw the Teamsters out, out of the, um, out of the labor organization, which, uh, you know, a, an anthology of labor organizations. And and then the United States government stepped in, and they had a board of monitors, which which ran, a, played a supervisory role with authority over the Teamsters Union. When they finally litigated the board of monitors out of existence, Hoffa rewrote the Constitution of the Teamsters Union, and centralized all power in his hands. 
And so that 1961 convention gave him enormous amounts of power to do enormous amounts of things. Like I said, when he lost that, when he lost, when he lost the presidency in July 1971, when Fitzsimmons was elected in his own right at the convention, elected by the delegates to the convention, um, he was in a position to take all of that power that Fitzsimmons had, and he was able to he he was able to centralize it. But what the reason why like the reason why the mob liked Fitzsimmons was because he didn't like to exercise he didn't like to exercise that centralized power where Hoffa did. He wanted all power centralized with him, where Fitzsimmons decentralized it. He had he gave these these various uh, uh, general executive board members these these fifteen or so vice presidents their little fiefdoms around the country, whether it was in Boston or Chicago or Detroit or or uh, Kansas City or Los Angeles, wherever. Everybody had their, the vice presidents had their own fiefdoms and they were making their own money and they were able to spread their own money around in order to fortify their base. And these guys became much more comfortable with, um, with, um, you know, this decentralized policy of Frank Fitzsimmons and they didn't want Jimmy Hoffa coming back in and centralizing everything again in his own hands where these guys would have to come to him on bend the knee in order to get, uh, you know, a pension fund loan. So in the last year of Hoffa's life, you have this power struggle between the pro-Hoffa Teamsters and the anti-Hoffa Teamsters, which Dan has alluded to where the powers that be in the anti-Hoffa camp actually assign Roland McMasters, who's a, a legendary Teamsters goon. It was for control of 299. That's what the fight, the fight was over, control of local 299. Right. right. And Hoffa had actually been very close to McMasters at one point, where McMaster was Hoffa's, you know, uh, go-to muscle, and and he would dispatch yeah. McMaster around the country to uh, impose his own to will. The mob. And connection to the uh, mob. Right. And connection to the mob. He was, uh, McMaster was was Hoffa's number one connection to, to the Provenzano crime family in yeah. New Jersey. So uh, McMaster, starting in um, early 75, late 74, begins this campaign of violence against the Hoffa camp to intimidate him out of trying to run for uh, the presidency in 76. And uh, by the summer of 75, things had reached a boiling point. And at some point, I believe in June uh, if not early July, the contract was issued and the uh, blueprint was put out there and it was the, the hit, the assignment for the murder, the most infamous mob murder probably in history, is given to the Giacalone brothers. And the, the Giacalone brothers were the face of the Detroit mob from the 1950s all the way into the 2000s. Um, although they weren't the godfathers, they were the street bosses, meaning they... They had autonomy on a day-to-day basis. They ran all the capos. Tony Giacalone was the older brother, and uh, Billy, Billy Jack was his younger brother and um, trusted lieutenant. And Jimmy Hoffa was on his way well, to— uh, a, uh, Scotty, yeah. uh, let me stop you a second. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Tony, Tony, Tony Giacalone, everyone kind of knows, a dapper guy, kind of uh, you know, very a tough— Tough, tough guy. He had a, had a stare that could Jack cut Lundy glass. Like? Was he like was he like Fredo or was he no was no no, he no. A tough guy? Was he smart? No, he was they very have, smart. Brains. He was very smart. He, 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 really? st- he, was he stood on his own merit. Uh, they were okay. the they were the perfect good cop bad cop tandem. Uh, Billy was the politician. Wow. Tony was the one that wanted wow. to stare through you, and Billy would buffer for Tony. Um, but yeah, Billy Billy Jackaloni was. Far from a stooge, not someone that uh, leveraged 
his family name to rise through the ranks of the mafia. He did it on his own merit and was someone that was very savvy, um, much more adept at um, navigating his way through the various street factions in Detroit and and nationwide. He was someone that Joe Zerilli and uh, Joe Zerilli was the, the longtime Detroit godfather. Joe Zerilli and Tony Giacalone would send Billy uh, around the country to to kind of politic with other families. So yeah, Billy was someone that was a uh, a dual threat. He was someone that knew how to make money, um, and he was someone that knew how to kill people. I knew I, I interviewed almost everybody. I interviewed almost everybody on this case, but I never got close to Tony Jackaloni or or, or or Billy Jack. I never got close to the either FBI. One of those believes guys. that the Jackaloni brothers are probably responsible for upwards of fifty gangland homicides in their careers, whether you know, being that they did it themselves or that they ordered it or greenlit. And at the top of that list is the Jimmy Hoffa disappearance and murder that we're talking about right now. There's two things I want to get to as we kind of, we can't stay on here forever, although I would love to sit here and talk about Jimmy Hoffa for hours and hours, but we're going to try to wrap up in the next 10 to 15 minutes. But let's kind of go to the day he disappears. He's on his way to go meet Tony Giacalone, Tony Provenzano, uh, and Lenny Schultz. So I want to give, uh, and you know, Schultz, right. and Dan teased this earlier. Um, so my contribution to uh, Hoffa research, uh, what, what I like to and say, it's a great one. It's a great what, one. what I like to say was um, I've never been able to tell anyone uh, for sure where the body is. I can't tell you for sure uh, who gave the final say so, but I'd like to try to, you know, carve out a niche for myself in the in the lore of Hoffa research as being the guy that that pinpointed where he was killed and I I started off on that journey um being pretty adamant in my belief that he was killed at Carlo Licata's house which uh, Carlo Licata was a a Detroit mob soldier who had come from Los Angeles he was a the mafia prince of Los Angeles because his father had been the godfather of the LA mafia and then he married into the Detroit mob family he was the the son-in-law or sorry, the, the, well, he was the brother-in-law of the acting mob boss at that time, Jack Toko, um, and was the son-in-law of the, the Detroit Mafia's founding father, Black Bill Toko. And he had a house that was about a five-minute drive north of the Marcus Red Fox, which was the restaurant that Hoffa disappeared from in Bloomfield Township, Michigan. And it was a house that Hoffa had been to uh, on, on previous occasions to meet Tony Giacalone for sit-downs. And then... Carl Licata mysteriously ends up dead at that house on the six-year anniversary of Hoffa's disappearance, July 1st, or sorry, July 30th, 1981. So there, initially, I had thrown all my chips into the Carl Licata theory. I'm not willing to completely divorce myself from that, but that said, I have come across a new theory in the last year of my reporting that, you know, if if if, if I was married to Carl Carl Licata theory, I'm stepping out on him, and I'm having dalliances with other theories, and I'm I'm very um, strongly kind of pushing towards this new theory and and kind of taking my chips away. And I from, have fallen in love yeah, with this new theory. Have so taken I, my I, chips. I am, I am one of. This is one of your new theory's biggest fans, but go. This but is this, what I completely embrace. What you this have, makes a lot with, of sense. This was a, makes a lot of sense. Um, in the same way that the Lakata House made sense, but this actually makes sense almost maybe more. Um, in the sense that Lenny Schultz was one of the people that Hoffa was going to meet that day. Lenny Schultz was a 
Jewish racketeer slash labor consultant. He was tied into the old Purple Gang, um, the old Detroit Jewish mob. And and by the 60s and 70s, he had become the Jackaloni brothers' uh, liaison to the Teamsters. And in that job of being the Jackaloni's liaison to the Teamsters, he also was a go-between between Hoffa and the Jackalonis. Uh, Lenny Schultz also owned Tony Jackaloni's headquarters, the Southfield Athletic Club, and was with Tony Jacqueline that entire day. They were supposed to be at the Red Fox to meet Hoffa, but in fact, they were um, together all day at the South Athletic Club. Lenny Schultz's house, which was about, uh, Lakata's house was a five-minute trip north uh, from the Red Fox. Schultz's house was about a five-minute drive going west. And it was a house that had actually been used in the previous year for a murder. So we know that the Detroit mob, specifically the Jackaloni brothers, were comfortable using the Schultz residence as a quote-unquote kill house. Um, in 1974, they murdered a local businessman in Detroit, a very prominent local businessman by the name of Harvey Leach, who owned Joshua Door Furniture, which was a very a trendy furniture store. And he had, <laughs> to his his detriment had gone to the Jackaloni brothers for a loan to expand the business. And when they gave him that loan, they actually took over the business and busted out said business and pushed out uh, Harvey Leach. And they ended, and Harvey Leach started to kind of buck uh, or maybe uh, resist some of this business takeover. So they called him to a meeting in March of 1974 at... Lenny Schultz's house, and then uh, hours later on his wedding day, they found him in the trunk of his car um, a couple miles away from where Schultz's house was in a office building parking uh, office building parking lot on 13 Southfield. But I had a source present themselves to me um, last, uh, last winter, um, and it was someone that I had never developed. I had, I had not uh, cultivated as a source. He, he came to me cold. Um, and he was someone that I knew kind of through some of my grandpa's friends. Um, and he was a Jewish racketeer um, that had once been Lenny Schultz's driver and bodyguard. And this uh, organized crime figure told me point blank that Lenny Schultz and him had been uh, driving um, at some point in the mid-90s and uh, were, was dr- were driving past the Red Fox and that Lenny Schultz just kind of blurted out without um, prompting to his driver that, uh, that, that the Jackalonis had lured Hoffa to his house and that they had murdered him, that I believe they, that he said that they had strangled him. They didn't shoot him, uh, that they had strangled him at uh, Schultz's house and that Roland McMaster was then given um, possession of the body to do with, with it what he was instructed to do. Now, this ties into Dan's theory that what Roland McMaster was instructed to do was take the body uh, in a gateway transportation truck down to New Jersey to be buried at the PJP landfill. And that brings let us— me just add, just yeah. to, let, me, let me just add to yes. that, 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 and you and I have talked about this, Scotty, that after the body is given to, to uh, Schultz's uh, accomplice— that it, it is given to Roland McMaster. Now, remember, the, the, it's the farm. It's right. the farm where the FBI did this very righteous search. In 2006. In 2006. Took, took a ton of grief for it. 
but it was a totally righteous search of Roland McMaster's farm in 2006 where they tore down the barn and everything else. The Hidden Dreams Ranch in Commerce Township, Milford Border. Yes, in, in Milford Township. That was that, that was Don Wells, uh, who was a, who was in the federal penitentiary down in Lexington, Kentucky at the time, and he gave them that information that there was that the information about Hoffa was that there, yes, in fact, there was a pre-dug hole in the back of the in the back of the farm, uh, but I, I don't I certainly don't believe that Hoffa was buried there. I think that's where they rallied up with the gateway truck. Uh, but the evidence was what happened with Don's evidence was what happened be, the night before the murder. And that's where he and, 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 um, McMaster and Stan Barr are having dinner together at Charles Chop Chop House, House, which was a favorite haunt of Tony and Billy Giacalone. They were there a lot at that and time. And Tony Provenzano comes up, Tony Provenzano, who's with some guys who Don did not know. Uh, and he comes up to Roland McMaster and he says, Hey, can I, can, can we talk for a second? So McMaster gets up, they go to the bar, they go to the bar, have a private conversation, come back. And Provenzano says to uh, McMaster and bar, uh, Stan bar, the head of gateway. He says, you guys know where you're going to be tomorrow. Right. And, and McMaster says, yeah, we're all straight on that. That was, that was Don's information. Now, the FBI, when they did the search, they tore down the barn and everything else. One of the local congressmen out there raised hell because it cost a quarter of a million dollars. But the FBI left there saying, you know, yes, we did not find, no, we did not find Hoffa's body here, but we do believe that Hoffa was here on the day of his murder. Mm -hmm. And what I believe happened is that Scotty is right. I, I, I've always thought, see, McMaster had a house about five minutes south uh, down, um, down what telegraph road, uh, from the red Fox about five minutes away. And, and I thought possibly he had been murdered there or he had been taken to the farm and murdered there. I now believe Scotty's story that he was taken to, uh, Lenny Schultz's house. He was murdered there. He his body was turned over to his accomplice who then turned it over to Roland McMaster. They took it to the farm. That's where they rallied up with the 55-gallon drum with the gateway truck, and I think Jim Shaw, uh, McMaster's driver, that the long-haul driver for McMaster for Gateway, that drove the thing to New Jersey, where it was buried at Brother Moscato's dump. And Jim, Jimmy Hoffa would have felt comfortable going to Lenny Schultz's house too, which which leads yeah. credence to the credibility, right? right? Like like. He it means actually more credence. I mean, right. the, the Lakata theory comes in because his house was, was, so, was close. so close to it and that right. Hoffa and Jackaloni had been there for sit-downs before and then the fact that Lakata ends up dead almost sure. to the minute uh, six years later, like at 3 o'clock, like the same time that Hoffa yeah. would have been killed. But Lakata's, other than the fact that Lakata's connected to the people that did it, there was no other connection really yeah. From Lakata to he wasn't a he wasn't a labor right. Other than think. the fact that I know that house had been used for a sit down or two between Jack Lone and Hoffa, yeah, which Lakata's is Lakata's killed in July of nineteen eighty one. Eighty one, you're saying? Yeah. Uh, you have to understand what's happening at that time. What's happening here in Washington at that time is Ray Donovan is 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 in the is in the news. Ray Donovan, who had been appointed, who had been nominated by President Reagan to be Secretary of Labor, was under investigation because of his mafia contacts. And the person who was the number one accuser of Ray Donovan was Ralph Picardo, who was also the number one accuser of the, uh, you know, the Bergulios and the Andretas as Hoffa's killers. There was a big spotlight on Ralph Picardo, and there was a renewed interest in, in the summer of 1981 
in the Hoffa case because of Picardo's presence in the case. You know, I don't think it's it's crazy to assume that this was almost it was almost a versionary to whack somebody in Detroit whose house they thought may have been the scene of the crime when in fact, you know, to get the get the get the I didn't know about this. I I I I respect obviously the FBI in Detroit, but these guys who were there were were were, were reading about this in their weekly readers at the time. We were on our hands and knees right. crawling through mud and muck and everything while all of this was going on. And I'd, I'd like to hear, you know, I'm going to say that Hoffa's body is buried at, at Brother Moscato's stop. I believe that we are on the verge of proving it, or I'm on the verge of proving it. And, um, but I, I, I know that the FBI has good information. It's information that you know about, you know, um, uh, uh, Tony, Tony Powell. Yeah, so we, and, haven't, we uh, haven't brought him up yet, but let's just give people a quick idea. Uh, he's not nearly as known in these parts as the Jackaloni brothers. Uh, people that don't know anything about the mob in Detroit know who the Jackaloni brothers are. But Tony Palazzolo was kind of a sleeper, um, was a guy that ran the whole downriver section of Detroit. Um, they called him Tony Pal or Tony the Butterfly or Tony Sausages. Uh, he headquartered out of Eastern Market at the Detroit Sausage Factory or the Detroit Sausage Company, I think it was called. And uh, Pal Zola was someone that was very close to the Vitali crew in Greektown. And the Vitalis were, uh, the Vitali brothers were also tied into uh, labor racketeering in Hoffa. Uh, are also believed and partners to, with Jimmy Quasarano, right? Yeah. Believed to be involved in, in some aspects of the conspiracy. Um, was also very close to the Jackalones. And at some point in the last ten years, the FBI has come to the belief that Tony Palazzolo was the actual killer. I don't know if I believe that or not. I believe that Tony Palazzolo was. I heard, from what I understand, they picked it up on a wiretap. Well, no. So what it was? So Tony Pal got nailed in a money laundering case back in '93, and as a part of that uh, case, there was a wiretap at the Detroit Sausage Company, and on that wiretap, he's bragging about being part of the Hoffa uh, murder conspiracy. And then they've also had some, from what I can understand, they've had some informants tell them some stuff in the last 10 or 15 years. So at some point in the last 10 years, they've come to the belief that uh, Palazzolo was the actual killer. I believe Tony Zerilli, the Detroit mob underboss, that um, at the end of his life, um, I guess, I don't know if you call it flipping, but you know, he went to the FBI, didn't, didn't really have a deal to make per se, but was, was trying to get back at Jack Toko. And, it's a, qualify, a qualified flip. Yeah, qualified and, and flip. tried to it's point the... Limited F, flip. Yeah, tried to point the FBI in the, in the last years of his life to a piece of property in at Oakland Jack Township Toko. that Jack Toko owned. Jack Toko was the acting boss right. of the Detroit mob at that time. Right. Um, but, but isn't there currency for these guys to, to all say that they, they know about Hoffa? That yeah, of course I mean, there is. like, yes. he could have been bullshitting. Right. Right. Um, so, well, I think that's why I think that's why they took him back to Jersey. I think it's I, from what Moscato basically told me. It was they wanted to keep the trophy. They wanted to use it as a bargaining card. And I know as a fact, I know as a fact that that there was a that there was a mafia guy who was under indictment, and he tried to bargain off his body in order to get a better deal from the feds. Yeah. And uh, and I was not told this by some mob guy. I was told this by an FBI agent. So Tony Powell died um, two years ago, I believe, uh, winter of 2019, um, of stomach cancer. But he was. Did a you ca- ever try to interview him? Yeah, uh, I did, um, and uh, I felt like I was getting close to that point, and then he died. <laughs> um, I was having some conversations. Yeah, I hate with, when that happens. Yeah, I was having some yeah. conversations with people that were kind of. 
talking on his behalf. But he was a, he was known as a real character, um, someone that uh, was very elusive. That's how the nickname the Butterfly came along. Um, the FBI used to call him the Butterfly because he was difficult to uh, monitor. And uh, you know he was someone that, according to the FBI's theory, used his role in the Hoffa murder conspiracy to leverage um, his own career in the mob and that he went from just a kind of a lowly button man when this all happened in 75 to a crew boss in the 1980s to a capo in the 90s to the point where he was consigliere or number three in charge uh, of the of the crime family until he died a couple years ago. Um, I don't know if I subscribe to the theory that Tony Powell was the killer. I definitely subscribe to the, the theory that Tony Powell was there. Um, I believe that the what, th- what I suggest, what I, Scotty, what I suggest you do, and I've told this to other friends of mine who are looking into this case, is let me play my hand out here as to whether I can ID the exact location of Hoffa's body, because that's going to tell us a lot as to, what, as to whether this was a Detroit thing or a New Jersey thing. Let yep. me play my hand out yep. on this. If I'm wrong, you know, people like De Niro and others are going to dance on my head. I got that. You know, even though, you know, I, I, I think I'm, I'm not going to be completely eliminated from this thing because I know everybody knows I have the best of intentions, mostly because I refuse to accept any money for anything unless the body is recovered and positively identified. Yep. I have accepted no money from anybody for like 17 months of work here. And it's because I don't want to be Geraldo Rivera opening an empty vault here. Right. Um, but once, if I'm right, I'm right. If I'm wrong, then guys like you who have kept an open mind, who have not, you know, gone all in on one particular theory like I have, will continue to keep this case alive. Even if I fall, you know, you will be there to, you know, pick up the baton and, and to run with this thing and, and continue this investigation, which I still continue, believe this case can be solved. And um, And there's nothing that I would love more than for – the case A to be solved, the body to be found or the remains to be found, and that Dan Moldea, who has been here since literally day one, would be the one that literally. that that can say that that they uh, that they bagged the they bagged the big game that they've been out looking for for forty five years. Uh, no well, one would be more white deserving. Whale. I got my white yeah. whale. Yeah. I got my so, no, uh, to me, there is no justice unless I'm there at the denouement of this of this case, and I do plan to be there at that denouement. So your theory is being um, kind of fleshed out on Fox News, or sorry, Fox Nation, their streaming service. I've, I also participate in this. Yeah. Um, they have a ongoing yeah. Jimmy Hoffa investigation known as Riddle, the search for right. uh, James R. Hoffa. I believe they're on their fourth right. installment. Um, right. And they it's, did. They released their fourth installment last uh, last, we, last Saturday. Friday, last Both Friday. me and Dan um, play a role in it. So check it out if you can. Where right. can other people um, read your work and, and, and follow you, Dan? Just to be clear about this, I mean, I'm not Fox News's bitch. I mean, I was. <laughs> um, yeah, I had a real. I got a real problem with Fox News politically. Let me tell you. I, I do I too, mean, frankly. But I like Eric. <laughs> Eric is an honest guy. He's a good reporter. Uh, and uh, he's a he's a, he's a man with integrity, unlike just about everybody else. At, 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 at the <laughs> hey, man, Eric, I, I felt a lot uh, especially better. Especially the evening lineup. Yeah, I felt Probably. a lot better, though, when because Eric Sean's the one that Dan and I have been working with at Fox News and he's their weekend guy. I felt a lot better in my affiliation with them and with Eric personally when I saw that Eric was the first person on the on the Fox News network to come out after all these crazy conspiracy theories were being bandied about after the uh, the Biden win and he said no 
I know what my audience, right. meaning the Fox audience, thinks, but I'm telling you as right. the Fox uh, right. correspondent that there was no fraud in this election. It's a legitimate election, and the certification is valid, right. and Joe Biden's our right. new president. He basically called Trump a liar. Yeah. He called Trump a liar. Yeah. He, was, he was covering – he was down in Philadelphia during the ballot, the, the reballot, the reballot – or I'm sorry, the, 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 the recount. And he flat out called Trump a liar. I was very proud of him. And, uh, but, the, you know, this, this situation where we went in with the ground radar equipment, this is a very, very complicated story. And I invited him to accompany back, accompany back to my return to PJP. And, um, and uh, we, I have a whole team here. We're doing a documentary. What, what Eric was supposed to be doing was a documentary about my documentary. That's what this thing was supposed to be about. And now this has turned into Fox News has uncovered that. And that's not exactly what happened in this situation. But we'll clear things up as, as time goes on. With again, I'm not blaming Eric, who's a good man. I'm blaming Fox News, but that's you know comes with the territory when you're dealing with the, you know the you know when you're dealing with Fox News, you're not dealing with completely, you're not dealing with the New York Times. Let's put it that way. Well, Dan, I, I couldn't be more appreciative, and I know I speak for Jimmy and I speak for WJR and StartupNation.com to to have you here to to kick off the new incarnation of the Original Gangsters podcast and and shed so much light and perspective and knowledge on which, you know, the Hoffa case, which we said is, you know, there's no question. It's, it's the most talked about, the most iconic, uh, the biggest unsolved mystery in American history. And hopefully Absolutely. Dan Absolutely. himself. Well, have me back when I find a way. I will, I promise. And hopefully Dan himself is going to crack this thing wide open and we're going to finally have some closure 46 years later. And I will no longer have to do interviews, the same interview that I do over and over <laughs> no, and over no, no, again no. with this... various outlets from around the world talking about Jimmy Hoffa. We still, we still don't know who's in the car. We still don't know who's in the car. When yep. he was saying, I, and, and in fact, I think there was more than one car. I think there was more than one car. And again, you go back to the Don Wells story. His wife saw two to three cars going up the path at the farm at McMaster's farm at that at at um, at uh, two thirty three o'clock uh, that afternoon at mid afternoon on July thirtieth, nineteen seventy. She saw two to three cars go up that path at McMaster's farm. I believe there was more than one car involved in this. Thing. Well, Dan, uh, again, thank you for everything you've done, both for me and my Always career, a pleasure, Scott. and Jimmy, having, pleasure having you as a you. guest, and then everything you've done for for uh, you know chron- chronicling this very very historically significant uh, case. And I, I actually take umbrage with people that, you know, 46 years later say, you know, why does it even matter? Who cares? Uh, it does matter. Right. It does matter. It does matter. You you got, you've got a very infamous guy. You've got a yeah. famous guy, infamous guy, uh, an anti-hero, let's say, who vanishes in broad daylight from a public place. I mean, that happens in third world countries. That should not be allowed to happen yep. in America. we got to solve this case. I agree. Thanks, Dan. You're the best, and I wish you the best of luck, and we'll, we'll talk soon. Always a pleasure, you guys. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Talk to you soon. Yep. Bye-bye. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this first new episode of the Original Gangsters podcast. We're going to be bringing you much more consistent content. We're going to be bringing it to you in a more multimedia fashion. We're really excited about our new home. Any closing remarks, JB? I would just say uh, thanks for your patience, everyone. I know it's been a while since we dropped an episode, but something we talked about before was we were were trying to get to a, a point where we could have more content bigger content on a more consistent basis and it it just took a little while for us to get this new thing going our new partnership here but we're happy and uh we're we're happy that you're with us and and be looking forward to i think we're going to get on a 
get on a um, routine where we're, we're putting out an episode a week. So uh, cool. hopefully, you know, you'll be able to consume as much as you'd like because I've had so many conversations and so many interactions with people that are just starving for more original Gangsters podcasts. And let me just, again, what Jimmy said, it wasn't for it wasn't for our, our lack of, of wanting to give it to you. There were some things at play that, you know, we just... Had, had, to no kinda, control had no control. Had no control. Had to extricate, <laughs> extricate ourselves from. But now we're we're back up and running, and we're going to make this thing bigger and better than ever. And thank you very much. We'll see you on the next OG podcast. Scott Bernstein, Jimmy Bouchelado, we're out. Yeah.